0: In Buddhism we follow what is called the Tipitaka, the three baskets. It's a large body of texts that is said to contain the teaching of the Buddha and his close disciples. In what you could call the purest or the closest to original form, and so we we can understand how important it is that our practice be in line with if not in, in, in encompass all of if not encompass all of the Dipitaka then at least be in line with the Dipitaka and yet we see that often this isn't the case Um, why this isn't the case is because most Buddhists don't bother to read the Dipitaka for the most part most Buddhists will take word of mouth accounts of what is the Buddhist teaching, often relying on their teachers, or even just relying on parents or friends or school teachers. But even among those people who have read the Tipitika, there are then those people who, the majority of people who have studied the Tipitika haven't practiced the Buddhist teaching have never put it into practice. The majority of people who practice the Buddhist teaching, who actually come to meditate, haven't read the uh, scriptures, the Tipitaka, or even large pieces of it. It's hard to find someone who has both studied the Tipitaka and practiced Meditation, Buddhist meditation, or, or made some attempt at practicing according to the um, according to the <coughs> And so we have kind of this quandary that we're dealing with many different ways of approaching Buddhism often simply because of not reading the, the text or not following texts, following someone who isn't following the text. And I tell you, if you haven't practiced meditation, the tapitika, the, the texts the texts of the tapitika, they don't have much meaning. They won't have much significance in one's uh, mind. They won't appear to be of any value or any use. They will appear dense and confusing, but the amazing thing about the Buddhist teaching is that the more you practice the more alive and appealing and indeed wonderful and amazing are the Buddhist teaching in the Tipitaka, (coughs) which is a sign both that the, the Buddhist teaching is the meditation practice is something very profound And that the teachings in the Dipitaka are something very profound. And so it doesn't do us, it doesn't serve our purpose to rely on someone who has simply read the texts because, for the most part, they don't understand them. They think they understand them and they understand the letter, but not the meaning. And so they wind up applying it to very ordinary things. Saying that the Buddha was a, um, a, um, a socialist or someone who was trying to um, revolutionize the social order, or they say that the Buddha was teaching us how to live our lives um, in 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 ordinary everyday in an ordinary everyday sense and so on and so on, and, and they won't ever get around to teaching profound subjects like insight and meditation. On the other hand, if someone simply practices meditation, um, often without a teacher, uh, or perhaps with a teacher, but in, a, in an informal setting, <coughs> then it's quite likely that um, one will, will 90% of the time get off track. You could say even 100% of the time without really formal instruction. If one hasn't read great amounts of, of the text, <coughs> it will be very likely that they will get off track. But the curious thing here is that reading the texts themselves without practicing is, uh, is a difficult task. And so then if practicing without reading is a a dangerous task, or a dangerous practice, then how do we go about um, approaching this dilemma? How do we go about approaching the Buddhist teaching? And of course the answer is to have a teacher, to have someone who has done both. And so what we're we're relying on really is not just the text, but it's the people who... um, who have carried the texts from the time of the Buddha and have practiced according to them. It's also possible to read the texts for oneself and practice according to them, but this takes a very special individual. There have been people who have done this in the history. When they didn't have a teacher, or in a time when there were very few or maybe even no teachers, they were able to apply the, the texts according to their core message. But for the most part, people who do this simply get off track. Get lost and don't know what to do next, don't know where to go. And so the most recommended path is to have a teacher who can explain the, the texts. And at the same time, it, it, it's important to say that there's no need in that case to, to actually read the texts themselves. Um, because what you'll find is that most of the texts were given at some point of the Buddha's 45 years as a Buddha to a a, a large, a broad variety of of audiences with different needs, different um, interests, different inclinations. And so he taught different things for different people. Now in this sense it's useful for say a teacher or it's even useful for a meditator to see all the different approaches but on the other hand not all of the teachings will necessarily be suitable for an individual meditator at any given time. And so to read all of them simply for the purposes of meditating is both overkill and perhaps even misleading because uh, some of the texts might even seem to contradict each other having been given for different people at different times. But on the other hand, it's very important that our practice and the practice that our teacher gives to us is according to the Tipitaka, And so often there should be citations given. Where does this teaching come from? For instance, the four foundations of mindfulness. It's important to make clear that this isn't something we just made up or that was made up by a commentator or a disciple of the Buddha. It's actually the Key practice that the Buddha recommended for his students: mindfulness of the of, of the body, the feelings, the mind, and the dhammas. Of course, there are other practices that are in the Tipitaka, and these are given for individual meditators. But by and uh, by, by and large, the the key, you could say, or the core practice of the Buddha is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And he made this clear in the Great great Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness as well as the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. The same, almost the same discourse is found in two places as well as a huge section of the, uh, a large section of the Sanyutanikaya Nikaya devoted t- directly to the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. As far as meditation practice goes, The Four Foundations of Mindfulness is the most, um, as far as I can think, it's the most often referred to, uh, most widely taught. Of course, there are other teachings that are maybe more often referred to, such as the the, uh, teachings on the Six Senses, or the Five Aggregates, or the Eightfold Noble Path, or the Four Noble Truths. But none of those are specifically meditation practices. So when we do our meditation, we can be um, rest assured that the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, for instance, when we say, rising, falling of the abdomen, or walking, stepping right, stepping left, that we're practicing according to the Buddha's teaching. When we uh, pay attention to the feelings, pain, or aching, or soreness, uh, happy feelings, neutral feelings, saying to ourselves, pain, pain, or happy, happy, or calm, calm, that we're practicing according to the Buddhist teaching. When we watch the mind, thoughts, good thoughts, bad thoughts, um, past thoughts, future thoughts, um, then we're paying attention to um, the mind we are practicing according to the Buddhist teaching. Or when we focus on the many dhammas, the many... Groups of of phenomena or of mind states or of of qualities of mind or specific teachings that the Buddha gave when we're mindful of these realities. Um, For instance, the five hindrances, when we say liking, liking, or disliking, disliking, drowsy, drowsy, distracted, doubting. When When we acknowledge these, we can see that we're practicing according to the Buddha's teaching, as the Buddha said. Um, when one of these things is present, he, we know this is present. Or um, when we're walking, we know walking. When we're sitting, we know we're sitting. Uh, we know to ourselves, "I am sitting. I am walking," and so on. Or simply put in English, "walking, walking; sitting, sitting." Uh, when when there's a painful feeling present, one knows there is a painful feeling present, or simply pain, pain. And so on. So this is one thing where we can rest assured. But, but the thing I wanted to talk about tonight, besides simply giving this sort of idea, is to give a core, sort of a core overview of the, of the, of the Tipitika. Because we have this huge body of texts, three baskets of 84,000 teachings, or somewhere in that, num- in that number, somewhere near that number. Um, How do we make sense of this all? And how do we understand what is it that the the Buddha taught? Okay, so Four Foundations of Mindfulness is somewhere near the core, but what exactly is the core? Um, How do you sum up the Buddha's teaching? And there are many ways to do this. Uh, I'm only going to talk about one, and I'm going to give what is the accepted summary. You know, you could summarize the Buddha's teaching under the Four Noble Truths because really everything that the Buddha taught was based on the Four Noble Truths. But there's another way of summing up the Buddha's teaching that is much more practical. Um, not to say that Four Noble Truths are not a very important teaching, but on a practical level. How do we put the Four Noble Truths into practice? How do we put the Buddha's teaching into practice? And for this, we look to the Buddha's last words. Because before the Buddha passed away, he said, appa sampadheta Which is variously translated as Something like uh, Strive on with diligence Or strive on with uh, heedfulness And this was all he said Before this he said that all formations are are subject to cease Everything is subject to cease Which was basically using himself as an example That even he passes away Even Buddhas pass away that everything is subjective, cease. Everything that arises is subjective, cease. Then he said, two words, which is strive on, or actually a a literal translation would be, fill yourself up with, or come to full attainment of heedfulness. which is the opposite of pamada, which means uh, intoxication, or heedlessness, or negligence. So being this idea of being heedful, in one sense being mindful, and I'll get to that in a second, because actually the two are very much related. But why we know this is the core of the Buddha's teaching, well, besides it being his ba- last words and therefore having great significance, we have the commentator's uh, appraisal of the tapitika in regards to this teaching of, of Mata. And so the commentator says that when you boil down all of the Buddha's teachings, all of the three Tipitakas in their entirety, Sakalampihi Te Pitaka, the, the whole entirety of the, of the three Pitakas, the three baskets, which are the Buddha Vachana, the Buddha's teaching, uh, when, you, when you boil it down, when you compact it down, it is all for the purpose of pointing out. The what is called appamada patang, appamada eva otarati. It boils down to the path of heedfulness, uh, the path of diligence, the path of mindfulness, if you if you will. <clears throat> now, why we can say the path of mindfulness is is uh, because of what I'd like to talk to talk about exactly what is, what the Buddha said is uh, appamādā. And there are four things that are appamādā. And this is something that I think is important to talk about, important to let everyone know. What is is the state of mind that we're trying to attain? How should we approach our meditation? When we meditate, what is important to keep in mind? And if we keep in mind these four uh, principles then we have an understanding of what state of mind we're looking for. Of course, we're still practicing the four foundations of mindfulness, but here we have four things that are sort of a way of um, keeping ourselves in check. The first one is akod, uh, akodhano no, appayapano, sorry, I'm thinking in a different set. Appayapano, which is, basically means akodhano, it's the same thing, it means not uh, not having having freedom from ill will, not not wishing ill of others. Uh, basically means not being angry, not getting angry. Apayapa <laughs> no sathasatov. Sathasato means always being mindful. So mindfulness is in there. Uh Achatang Susamahito number three which means uh, being internally composed being sort of you could say level headed or, or composed having an internal composition or being well composed internally and then number four uh, training oneself to overcome or to leave behind greed to leave behind one's Clinging or craving. And as the Buddha said, This is called apamadha, this is called negligence, uh, diligence, non negligence. So these four things are, are sort of a very important teaching that we should keep in mind. Apayapano is, is, we should be free from from any kind of anger towards other beings, so when we're practicing this is something that we're working on and anger towards not just beings but all things in general. This is something that we should work out in the very beginning and try to give up our our resentment and our frustrations and our uh, intolerance of of unpleasant situations or unpleasant individuals or unpleasant interactions that we should try to um, free our minds from this anger this um, hatred or or frustration even things like boredom or sadness (coughs) the Buddha said this is one thing you can kill and sleep soundly there was one time a Brahmin came to the Buddha, he was very angry because his wife was Buddhist and she was making a, a nuisance of herself at home. When he had Brahmin guests over, she would say say the Buddha's name and so on. When she when she tripped and fell, she would say, "Oh Buddha, Oh Buddha, help me," or something like that. "Oh my God," instead of "Oh my God," "Oh my Buddha," or something like that. And so her guests would get upset and leave. And so he went to see the Buddha and got angry. And he said to the Buddha. What can you kill and s- rest at peace? Uh, what would you kill if you wanted to rest at peace? Basically, is what he's saying, he's ready to beat the Buddha. <coughs> and the Buddha, so he said, King katwa sukhang Having killed what, can you sleep at ease? And the Buddha said, Kodhang katwa sukhang He threw it back in his face. He said, By killing. Killing anger uh, is what you can uh, kill anger is what you can kill and, and live in peace rest in peace. And then he asked uh, he said, King katavana sochati. Having killed what, will you not uh, will you not weep or not be remorseful? And the Buddha said the same thing, vāna socati. When you destroy anger, you don't weep, you don't uh, regret. It's the one thing that you can kill, it's the one thing that you can destroy. Normally we think of destroying those things that make us angry. The Buddha said, really it's not possible, it's not the way of, of peace and happiness. So you have to kill this that's inside of yourself, which is the anger, the uh, upset about your situation. So this is the first one. The second one is sata-sato. This one we already understand. Sata means always. Sato means one with mindfulness. Always being one who is mindful. And you could say that this is, as I said, mindfulness and apamada are very closely related. So there's another point where the Buddha said, uh, uh, he said, satiya avipawasa apamado ti Being always never without, never being uh, without mindfulness. This is called apamada So, constant mindfulness, where we're constantly aware when we're walking, walking, when we're sitting, sitting, when we're seeing, we say seeing, seeing, hearing, hearing. We're, we're clearly aware of everything piece by piece as it comes one by one. Of everything. right? So here we are sitting here and there's many things going on. And you can see that uh, uh, Things arising and ceasing, coming and going, pain and aching and boredom and, or so on, thoughts coming. And so grabbing all of these things and catching them one by one in your attention and just seeing them clearly. Coming to see everything as it comes and goes clearly. Knowing it for what it is, this is mindfulness. This is, this is the state of constant mindfulness where we're aware again and again and again we send our mind out again and again to, mo- to know every moment what's going on in that moment and to see it clearly for what it is. This, the Buddha said, is called apamada. This is number two. Number three, ajatang uh, Samahito means to keep ourselves, keep our cool, you could say, to be internally composed. This is the feeling that you get when you really are meditating, when you've been practicing for some days, even a week, two weeks, and suddenly you start to settle in and you find your balance. In the beginning, it's very uh, tumultuous. tumultuous. It's very turbulent. Uh, There's good things coming, and so we like them. There's bad things coming, and so we run away from them, and we find ourselves back and forth. Our meditation is not quiet, it's not stable, it's not happy, it's not peaceful. And yet as we continue we start to work these, first the coarse defilements and then slowly the more subtle defilements until we find ourselves in this sort of balanced state of mind where good things don't affect us and bad things don't affect us. And in fact. We fail to see things as good or bad, we simply see them for what they are, coming and going. We're able to live, as it were, uh, on the waves as as they go up and down. We feel like we're going, we're smooth riding. This is the state of meditation, sort of what we're aiming for, to be impartial, to have a balanced state of mind. This is number three, and number four, is the training to overcome uh, greed, which is of course the opposite of anger, so they actually go together. But the Buddha placed emphasis here that the the idea is not to not be greedy, it's to train ourselves out of it, because really that's the core of the training. Anger is something, it's actually quite easy to see that it's it's a bad thing, much easier to see that anger is a bad thing. But it's our greed that we really have to work on and go deeper on, and really come to see and to give up our clinging to everything to give up all of our wants and all of our needs to not be uh, not be in discontent at all times to actually be be content with reality as it is however it is and to not become attached to it so that when it changes we can also accept the changes to simply be aware of things as they are and this takes a training sikhang is the, word the Buddha used and here we're training to look at things, we're examining the things of, the objects of our desire. So as opposed to when we know we're addicted to something, running away from it, we examine the process of addiction. Now in some cases this does require us to leave behind the object of addiction, for instance with drugs or alcohol. Um, but in most cases we can actually, at the moment of partaking in some simple addiction like... Um, and games, or, or television, or uh, people, or sensuality, food for instance, junk food is a good example. We can just watch ourselves as we're, as we're partaking and slowly, slowly wean ourselves off of it, slowly, slowly realize that this is a, a process of suffering, this addiction, that there's no need to be addicted to these things, and that it's actually bringing us great stress and suffering the little bit of happiness that we get is actually totally removed from the addiction itself. And so even though uh, there may be some amount of happiness in, in partaking in these things, it's, it, it, it comes about not because we're addicted, but simply because we're uh, partaking. And because of, the, of how small an amount of, of happiness it is, we can see that being addicted to these things is is actually a great amount of suffering. When we don't get what we want, we suffer. Um, And so we learn to just live with things as they are, and we learn to find happiness and peace in all things of all types and from all sides of the spectrum of reality. So in in a basic sense, we're talking about a state of mindfulness and, and observation of good and bad phenomena as they arise. When bad things arise, learning to not get angry at them, and not see them as bad. To give up this idea that certain phenomena are are bad or unpleasant. And to broaden our horizons, and get out of this idea of being uh, a human being stuck to this one birth, and so on. To start to see reality as um, an experience, or a series of experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. The whole flux of, of experience. And to see that it comes and it goes, and to not become attached to it. To be like a bird flying, as we fly through this stream of experience. And to really live. This is something where, when you understand and you come to uh, attain this state, or, or progress along the path, that you, you start to uh, your mind starts to become freed up, and you feel like this, like a bird flying, not clinging to anything. And so this is sort of what we're aiming for, and this is what I hope to impress upon everyone. Uh, actually, when you look at it, it's a very simple thing to do. Um, all of the Buddha's teaching are in the end um, for the purpose of following this path, for the purpose of bringing people to follow this path, this way of uh, constant alert and uh, alert attention and awareness of reality as it comes and goes, as it arises and ceases through, through the tool or the process or the practice of mindfulness so that in the end we can come to see things clearly and not be uh, deluded or confused by them. So that's the Dhamma that I thought I would give today and now of course comes the time where we Put it into practice. We start to uh, watch the reality as it comes in. So we should be mindful from moment to moment to moment to, our, to the best of our ability. So first we'll do the mindful prostration and then walking and then sitting.